0: Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Hello and welcome. I'm really excited about today's show because it addresses an intriguing subject worth your time and consideration. Some say faith healing is a charade concocted by charlatans to build their empires on the backs of the afflicted and suffering. Others think that Christians who reject healing contradict what Jesus said and did, not to mention the book of Acts, preferring the comfort of tradition instead of unleashing God's mighty power. I wonder... What do you believe about supernatural healing? Listen into this interview with Bill and Ann DeNeno to hear what they've learned in four decades of pursuing and practicing healing. In this interview, they discuss the benefits of keeping an open mind so that you can learn from others outside your own tradition. They go on to talk about deliverance, which is casting out demons, including both some of the excesses they've witnessed as well as the genuine results they've encountered. Next, they explain inner healing and how God can set us free from emotional wounds that happened long ago, but still push us around today. Lastly, they share about Christ-centered healing, where they look to Christ as both the example and the active agent in healing today. I think you'll really enjoy this interview, and I encourage you to leave comments about it at restitudio.org. And if you'd like to get in touch with the DeNenos directly, you can reach them at bdeneno at gmail.com. That's b-d-e-n-e-n-n-o at gmail.com. And if you haven't yet, why not subscribe to Restitudio so that you can get the next podcast episode automatically? You can find out how to do that at restitutio.org. That's restitution with no n dot org. Here now is our conversation on spiritual, emotional, and physical healing. I thought maybe we could begin by just hearing a little bit about your story, Bill, and Anne, and your own journey with regard to this subject. Okay.
1: We got started in the Christian ministry, really, in college, in a non-denominational Christian ministry that believed in healing, and we practiced healing somewhat. We would minister to, to each other. However, we saw very, very limited results, I would say, honestly, I personally saw. Occasional, but very limited, and nothing dramatic. And uh, we continued on in that ministry through our early married years. And really, things changed, things began to change in our understanding and our growth, probably around 2001, let's say. Okay. And we started learning Uh, from examples in the community uh, about deliverance ministry, which uh, we understood to be casting out of demons.
0: Right, so deliverance is typically talking about casting out demons.
1: Yes, and we have continued with that and actually seen um, very dramatic results just from that process. We really started uh, looking outward into the other Christian... Um, churches and other Christians and what was happening. And so we started observing some people who were getting really dramatic results, uh, freeing people from some really dramatic um, bondage and prisons that they had.
0: Could you give an example of what sort of Well, the first one that we
1: heard about? about was a young girl who was cutting herself and pulling out her eyebrows and trying to hurt herself. Uh, and couldn't stop. It was compulsive. Wow. Well, this was, you know, very, it was very serious. She was really suicidal and depressed and cutting herself. And, um, and, and you attended a meeting? No, actually we didn't, but I, I didn't personally, but someone in our church did. Oh, okay. And yes, and attended the meeting, saw that, met the person after this. Was, they were giving their testimony, basically. Uh, they didn't witness the deliverance process I see. at the time, but uh, this person was traveling around the different churches and giving uh, her testimony, and so they witnessed that firsthand, and then spoke to the person and start just it it opened the door of our interest, and so we began to pursue that, and we we got a, a manual that listed like. <laughs> thousands and thousands of, of demons and we would just try, you know, calling out different names. It was it was pretty rough in the beginning. But what what we found was well, people are so desperate. People are so hurting. Um, although they most people cover it over and, right. and yeah. put on a good front. But once you scratch beneath the surface or when people get desperate enough, they are really in need of God's healing and help. And so what you begin to hope for is to come up with a formula or a magic silver bullet or something, a process that will right. work every time and, and solve every problem. And so our minister, Bob Matson was very instrumental and was very excellent at pursuing, getting to the source. If someone was getting results, seeing people healed and delivered, he would go right to them. And then he would learn everything he could from them personally. We, he traveled all over the country. I went on one ill-fated trip to California with him. <laughs> it was probably the least productive. But, um, but he would go to the source, and he would also then grill the person as to how they learned the process. And we, we went through many different people. So he, he's from.
0: kind of like an investigator trying to very much figure so. out.
1: Very much so. And he was also very generous and very uh, open to include other people. Many, I think, pastors in that case would have wanted to learn the process, polish it, make sure they knew what they were doing before they really included other people kind of thing, right. saw them make mistakes and things. But Bob didn't do that. He welcomed as many of us who, as he who wanted to, to sit in on these, pro- and it was a learning process, and we made mistakes, honestly, as we look back. We originally started just with deliverance and there were, it was actually dramatic healing in that respect but then we in asking different people how they learned these things and what they were learning we got into what is commonly called I think inner healing emotional healing right now and again there were a number of people that we you know led from one to another to another some of them were more structured one that's one person that's fairly might be fairly well-known, as Ed Smith, who has a ministry yeah. named, uh, called Theophostic. Yeah, actually,
0: I went to a Theophostic seminar with
1: Bob oh. and, ah. and my dad, yeah, in Kentucky. We, we did oh, that. you? Oh, okay. Yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm familiar
0: with that. But so I, that was the
1: kind of trip that Bob would take to go right <laughs> to the source, and then not only that, but he would, like, <laughs> he, t- he told us a couple of times the person wouldn't really answer all his questions, so he would, like, go to the secretary or something, or some, go, you know, <laughs> how did this guy find, you know. He, so anyway, we went through that process, and, and that's...
0: Um, well, just for the sake of the listeners, describe for us what
1: Inner Healing and Theophastic Prayer is. Okay, actually, Theophastic is a good one to talk about, although there are many different flavors and brands, and everybody has a little bit different. But... The basic concept in Theophostic, I would say, is that especially when you are young and vulnerable, but it can happen anytime, you are in, might be in a situation uh, as a child or as a baby where a really powerful experience happens, and as a, a child, you have no frame of reference to understand why that was happening. Okay. and so you internalize. You, uh, children understand that everything uh, as being caused by themselves, right. or that it certainly affects them, but they really internalize everything. So when something happens, they can interpret whatever that scary thing is or that shaming thing is as being their fault. The way Ed Smith describes it is he calls it that you internalize or believe a lie about yourself, right that a certain situation happened and that was your fault. Let's just throw out an example. So say somebody's
0: parents get divorced when they're eight years old and they interpret that experience as a result of them not doing their homework as diligently as they should have each day when their parents told them to. And they believe deep in their soul that they are to blame for their parents getting divorced. Mm-hmm. And then 10, 20, 30 years passes, and now they have that baggage.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it can also happen with a parent or a, a person in authority, like a teacher or a coach, who shames them or who constantly tells them, you are you know, bad, you are will never amount to anything they, they can speak negative pronouncements over them over and over again and so the person can't actually internalize that
0: right
2: i have an example of someone who came to us in the beginning she was a professional highly educated electrical engineer some kind of engineer so she sat in the chair and as we started talking with her she pulled her legs up curled up into fetal position took her hoodie, and pulled it over her head, and then her face. She was engulfed in shame. It was visible. And as we went to the original place where all this started, it was her past. It was her family was from Africa, and things that had happened in Africa, things that happened in the United States, it had run her life, and she couldn't get out of that mode of shame. So we ministered to her, and It wasn't automatic, it wasn't instant, but through the years, she has dramatically changed. And it was just two weeks ago that she told us she got a job that she's been wanting for years. It uses her aptitudes and her skills, because even though she was very qualified and able to do her job, she could never get through without that shame.
0: Something in the job would trigger that shame or the interview process?
2: Daily work would trigger the shame. So, over the years, and it was years, it wasn't instant, like I said, she became more and more strong within. She got delivered of tons of spirits and she developed strength. She went to the word. She was persistent. She didn't give up. She came to us a number of times. And to see the success that she has now is really wonderful. She has a family and a husband and loves her church, loves her God. It was a wonderful change to see.
0: So how long would you say you
1: were working with her?
2: I'd say about four years total.
1: Something like Mm -hmm. that, it wasn't that regularly actually. Right, it was
2: when she decided, when she said, okay, I need the Lord.
1: (laughs) One way we explain it is if you are in a situation and your reaction on a scale Mm -hmm. of one to 10 is way out of bounds and Sometimes people don't realize this, but your child spills milk on the table. And you should be a a two, say, or a three. And you immediately go to an eight.
0: Right. Instead of being mildly annoyed, saying, oh, no, you just explode and flip the table over. Right,
1: right. Or (laughs) yell at your your child or whatever. And then later, you 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 think, why did I do that? But it's just an immediate reaction. It isn't just you're having a bad day, but it's a persistent thing. And it's a problem because you want to change it, but you find you can't. That's just one example. There are many and varied situations that indicate that you may have something beneath the surface that is driving that.
0: Right. I don't know if this would be an example or not, but I just remembered from Back to the Future, part one. Did you see that movie? Yes, 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 <laughs> I did. God. <laughs> the, uh, Marty McFly has this weird response to being called a chicken all right where he feels compelled to do whatever they're daring him to do right and it destroys his life over and over and at one point he even travels to the future and he sees his future self get fired from a job because he gets called chicken by this other guy and no matter what the situation is even if his life is in danger he feels compelled to always just do whatever the person says and everyone can see that
1: he's just getting handled and manipulated, mm-hmm. except for him, mm-hmm. would that be... Yeah, that's actually a very good example. And I don't want to get too much into the, the science of it, but with, with all the brain uh, and neurological research that they've done, they know that there's actually a part of the brain called the amygdala, which they okay. call the guard shack. And that is what controls the fight-or-flight mechanism. And what it actually does, there's the left brain, right brain functions the left brain is your conscious it records events and you can recall things uh, that's what helps you to recall things memories and things and the right brain really is the emotions and the uh, pictures and it records things differently and what happens if you get into a situation that is sufficiently scary the amygdala will shut down your left brain so that you don't f- use the left brain in that situation. PTSD is, is a very oh, okay. typical example. Yeah. This is what happens in PTSD. You were in, the, in a war in a very bad situation, a car backfires which triggers and you, and you have a reaction that you can't control because what happens is your left brain is now out of the picture and your right brain takes over to... It's a survival technique. And you are convinced that you're back in that situation. But this is more of what happens in many other situations, not just war, but especially with children and with uh, traumatic, scary situations and also with shaming and other things. When the trauma occurs, the
0: part of the brain that can analyze the situation and figure things out doesn't function right. So then there's an emotional imprint but not any kind of understanding to go with
1: it. Right. And that's why say, you know, in the spilled milk situation, when that isn't happening, you're saying, I'm not I shouldn't react that way. But when it happens, whatever the trigger was, maybe when you were a child, you know, you spilled your milk and something terrible happened, Mm. when you're a child you don't make logical conclusions or interpretations of events right. and if it's powerful enough it stays with you however it isn't that you remember it in the situation you don't remember this is why i'm reacting this way right yeah but no, in, in nobody
0: your, understands what right. what's driving it they just know
1: I, every time this
0: situation comes up in my life i have this inordinate right
1: reaction bounds, to it yeah out of balance this is why when you were asking me for examples and and I said it's hard for me to remember specific examples because I'm more of a facilitator the way we understand inner inner healing is to help the person to connect with God or Jesus however they understand it God will help them to remember to go back and remember the feelings you don't do it with the story but your body has stored all those feelings and all those events. And this is what the recent neurological research and brain research has found, that all those things are stored in your right brain. And God will help you to go back and feel that feeling. And then he will speak to you. And he actually does the healing in that situation. As I understand it, psychotherapy, the therapist will... Get you there, and then try to explain, you know, logically or rationally, what you should have understood or what you should have thought. But we have seen, and you know, over and over and over, God is much better than a psychotherapist at doing that, and it really heals and clears up the situation. Sometimes there are spirits that came in because you were vulnerable as a child, and they get dealt with in that situation or that time. But basically, that's how it works.
0: What's a typical session like?
1: Well, we start with prayer and then ask the person why they're there. What was, it, what was happening when they felt like they were triggered? Uh-huh. That's a, a common uh, term that's used. And the process is to get them not to think about it and try to explain it, but to... Relive and allow themselves to feel the feelings that they were feeling. Whether it's tension in their arms, whether it's a headache, whether it's sick at their stomach, what, you know, whatever the feeling is, not just to describe it as a reporter, but to actually let it come. You know, recreate the feeling. Let themselves. So there's they they have to be willing to do that. Yeah, I was just thinking that is
0: probably something most people want to avoid. That's why they're coming. Because they, they want to not feel that way when these sorts of things happen. And the first thing you do is ask them to feel that way. Yes. So
1: there's got to be quite a battle there. Yes, yes. And I know Anne could talk about that. But what we've seen actually with people who have gone through severe trauma and repeated and chronic, I guess, uh, habitual, there are many seem to be many layers in if you go through the inner healing process. And it's tough. It's very tough to go back at it over and over again
0: the person is feeling all of these emotions intensely they're trusting you that this is this emotional pain is going to be worth it right and they're in that moment
1: then what do you do when they really are back in that moment earlier whether it's childhood or whatever and they're experiencing the the situation then you ask god to tell them what the truth is or what was really where we perhaps where he was because many times one of their questions was god why did you abandon me or why was nobody there to protect me or uh, whatever but you then let god speak to them through their spirit and a lot of times they just sit there and we're quiet and we're just kind of watching and they go through different facial expressions sometimes or you can see them processing sometimes you don't see anything and but then after a period of time, they are very peaceful. And so we'll just say what happened, and they will usually tell us a story, an amazing, an amazing story <laughs> uh, of what was going on that was invisible to us, but was extremely real hmm. to them. And then generally, afterwards, they find that trigger is no longer there. They're, they're, they're able to control themselves or or, you know in the situation where previously they were triggered
2: and also at that point is often when we cast out a lot of spirits because they just can't stay there anymore Mm -hmm. light has been shown and when someone understands God loves them and is going to take care of them and he was there he did protect them more than they know the spirits can't stay sometimes they try to hide and we have to dig a little bit
1: Yeah, what you see is at times when you ask God to reveal the truth of the situation, if they're not hearing anything, there's a reason. And many, many times that is because there could be a a spirit blocking the situation or there can be other other reasons.
0: I imagine sometimes it could be they feel unworthy or that, God would never speak to them or some other kind of theological or emotional issue blocking that process.
1: Yes. It does many times come down to those kinds of things.
0: What attracts me to the inner healing a lot is the perspective that Ed Smith in particular has that this is really not on your own strength. This is not your education. I mean, here's a guy who does have a PhD and is competent to speak on psychotherapy issues. And his emphasis is, like you said, getting the person to experience it and then going back to that memory, that root, wherever it is, and then just praying with them Mm -hmm. and letting God interact and do something i love how you described it you're just sitting there and they're going through all these facial expressions all these memories and there's a lot of spiritual activity happening but you're just sitting there Mm -hmm. for those of us who are maybe less comfortable around emotional pain right i mean i don't think anyone's that comfortable around emotional pain that there's a lot of comfort there that if I'm walking somebody through this process, I don't have to save them. I don't have to fix them. It's not all the pressure on me to figure this
1: out and say it in such a way that that person is going to receive it. Right. And I remember uh, now thinking about it, Ed Smith um, was, a, I think, a more traditional psychotherapist. Right, yeah. Right. And he dealt with a lot of, I think, women who had been abused, if I remember correctly. And one maybe he had an uh, an aha moment or he just realized that he had this circle of women i guess he did group therapy at times anyway they were going you know week after week month after month and there wasn't really much progress maybe that pushed him to look for other ways and then he has incredibly more fruit from this process yeah
0: so at this time let's talk about some of what you've been learning since then we've discussed deliverance we've discussed inner healing what else in your
1: healing journey have you come across a few years ago because of a specific need in my family my grandson was born with uh, many needs cerebral palsy and cleft lip and palate and Mm -hmm. some other things and His other grandfather uh, had come across a healing ministry that he had come across a long time ago and then reconnected with, and that was Dr. Roger Sapp. And so we went to a conference of his. He does many of these on the weekends, and he calls them Christ-centered healing conferences. His premise is we can learn a lot from the entire Bible, but Jesus perfectly demonstrated the will of god there are many places where he says what i do is not my own idea the words i speak are not my own etc but i only do what the father is doing or what the father shows me to do so by studying christ's example you can learn exactly what the father's will is in healing so well, i mean that
0: makes perfect sense because Who's a better healer than Jesus? You read the Gospels. I mean, he's the Mozart of healers. Mm-hmm. He, thousands. He, right, thousands. thousands. I mean, they right. just line up, and it, it, he just heals them all. And one of the puzzling things about Jesus, though, is that there doesn't seem to be a, a, a description of the, the process of healing. He just heals people. And I think a lot of people are like, well, how did, how did that exactly work? How do I duplicate that?
2: As many times as I'd read the Bible, I never saw how many times Jesus laid his hands on people. I never noticed that. And if you start looking in the Gospels, you'll see it is very, very, very common. That's the normal way he did it. And we didn't think we had to because we didn't know it was there. Right. I missed it. That verse about heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you receive, freely give. Those are four magnificent verbs followed by kind of scary nouns. That's what Jesus Christ asked us to do as his disciples. So when I started really thinking that that was written to me and that was my, what I'm supposed to do as a Christian, I thought, well, then God's really got a responsibility to teach me, to show me I got to learn this. It's my job. God intends for us to work with him. He's got to make it simple. And it is a simple process. It isn't hard. They were not, those disciples were not greatly educated people. They were just ordinary people.
1: Okay, so when we went down to the conference, I have believed in healing all my Christian life, but this focus on that Jesus example, that if you study and look at what he did, that reveals the Father's will that he perfectly reveals the Father's will. And so you see that when people came to him for healing, he never turned them down. He never said, well, your time is not yet. Your time is not right for healing. Or you have too much sin. He never dealt with sin before he healed them, if you'll notice. You know, he didn't say, you're smoking a pack of cigarettes every day, so you're causing your own problems you get the point he never prayed about it he never said wait a minute let me check with my father and, and see or he didn't even pray to heal them he it just says he healed them he laid his hands on them and healed them as Ann said that's why mo- many people you see when they come to him and ask for healing they say will you come and lay your hands on my servant, my daughter, my my so and so, because that's what they saw, and that's the way the disciples and apostles did it in the book of Acts as well.
0: Yeah, it seems like it's not even Jesus that's originating the laying on of hands; it's just sort of something people expected in that culture for whatever reason
1: that there would be touch involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how he did it. So if that's how he did it, and he got pretty good results. Maybe that's how we should do it. That would be the normal way. Now, there are extraordinary examples uh, with the centurion. Right, with the servant. Uh, right, yeah. and servant and, and a few others where they were done long distance or without healing. But that would be maybe extraordinary. And let's let's start with the basics.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. In our culture, I think we are so germaphobic and so cognizant of personal space and individual rights that you would almost mm-hmm. be breaking all the rules to mm-hmm. touch somebody. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> Especially a leper. Well, yeah, definitely then, yeah. a leper. <laughs> yeah,
1: that, that would give you a pause, yeah. But at any rate, so you can learn the process, if you will, but there isn't really a process other than laying on of hands and of looking to Jesus. He is the healer. We, we aren't, as I think you said, Sean, it's not on us. We're not the one doing the healing. So there's no pressure on us from that sense. And many, many times the statement that Jesus makes is your faith has made you whole, your faith has healed you, your faith has delivered you. It is faith, but then of course there's that wonderful verse where he says, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, which was probably the smallest physical object that he could have chosen, which is probably why he chose it. Right. If you have just a tiny, tiny, tiny grain of faith, you can move a mountain, which again was probably the largest hmm. physical thing that they knew of. So his point was not that we, could, we should go around trying, you know, moving mountains l- literally, but the comparison of how much faith it takes, that it just takes a little bit of faith. So he was not raising the bar of faith to an extreme amount to make us think that we have to really, really grunt and groan and try and, and strain and pray for hours and get a 100 people to pray with us. His point was it's a simple process, but what defeats the process is doubt. I think he used the example of Peter walking on the water, which does not really involve healing, but it is really illustrates the process that... Peter got out of the boat, as you know, the waves were very heavy and he was walking on the water as long as he was looking at Jesus. But when he took his eyes off Jesus and looked at his circumstances, he began to sink. And Jesus said, oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? And that really seems to be the crux of the situation when it comes to healing. And that was what I learned. At this conference from his process Christ centered healing and actually our grandson did not receive all the healing that he needed at that conference but actually I did I I had experienced migraine headaches for about 30 years really pretty much one a week for 30 years and received healing at that conference Uh, one time I was prayed for one time and I didn't feel any different i didn't know i was healed actually uh-huh. but i never had another migraine since and that's been two and a half years wow two and a half years so it was dramatic and there were other dramatic healings and we have seen many more physical healings in this past two and a half years than i ever did uh in the preceding 40 i would say <laughs> well that's uh, quite a statement mm-hmm.
2: in the 40 years i think I counted up one time. It was about 15 healings that you'd figure were worth writing down that we ever did. Okay. But then once we learned about Christ-centered healing, it was about 40 healings in the space of a year and a half. Wow. Significant ones and ones that needed sometimes to come back, to be persistent and to stick with the healing Mm -hmm. because God wants you healed. He really does. It made a big difference to have Christ-centered healing as opposed to my great believing which didn't do a very good job
0: okay so the main difference then is rather than looking at your own faith as the activator
1: for the healing you're looking at christ as the activator yeah your faith is involved certainly but you're looking to jesus as the healer and it, and his accomplished works just as his accomplished works save us right. we yes. don't save ourselves yeah. we simply need to have faith to be saved and we simply need to have faith to be healed
2: and faith to be saved is just as easy to achieve as faith to be healed and faith to be delivered none of them is any harder than any other and so many people believe they're saved oh yeah but if you ask about deliverance or healing they go i don't eh." but it takes the same amount of faith
0: yeah i think the healing ministry is under a lot of criticism because of some abuses that are well known and on on youtube you know where mm-hmm. yeah. you have the uh, guy who hits you in the head and then you fall over mm-hmm. and who knows maybe at some point that did heal people but now it's been copied and replicated and now that's the way to do things so you have that one side of like hyper skepticism and maybe some of you listening to this are in that boat and then you have on the other side, you have a pretty logical conclusion that moves from God's existence to God's interaction and intervention in our lives. I mean, look, if there is a universe creator out there, then couldn't he heal your leg? (laughs) <laughs> you know, I mean, if he designed the human body and ultimately is going to resurrect us, bring us back from the dead, that's a healing if you think about it, right? Mm-hmm. Then why couldn't he get involved? And I, I think everyone has their own story about healing and why they are into it or not into it. What would you say to somebody who maybe had faith and prayed or was prayed for but then didn't receive the healing and then they became cynical about it later on and maybe that
1: was some years back and now they don't want to have anything to do with it. What would you say? Well, I think that's a very good point and I think that's a reason why people become discouraged with healing. Uh, I certainly understand that because we have prayed for some people and not seen anything. Certainly, we try not to measure things by looking and by our five senses however there has to be fruit ultimately for it to be successful what i would suggest is to look at the gospels and look at jesus look at the records there are about i think 89 not verses but records many of them are repetitive in the gospels of jesus healings and look at the results Okay. And what you see is, as I said earlier, I think Jesus never turned anyone away. In many, many cases, it says he healed all in the multitude. There, there are quite a few of those. In a multitude, at that time, as in our time, there have to be you know, relatively good people. There have to be some mediocre people. And some scoundrels. And some <laughs> scoundrels, uh, yes, or some rascals or whatever. So it isn't a question of us being good enough to receive healing. Let's say somebody believes that, that they have to be good enough, and they know they're
0: not good enough. Would you say that that's a healing blocker?
1: Yes, yes, because then it's your works. You know, I keep coming back to this, the example of Peter walking on the water is such a good example, or for me, to remind me. Whenever you take your eyes off, off of Jesus and start looking at yourself, if, if the healing seems delayed, or if it seems a partial healing, or if nothing seems to happen, immediately what do you do you say what did i do wrong or what am i doing wrong or what why isn't this happening and logically i don't think we would look at jesus and think he's not able because we know you know many verses that clear that up but it's possible we could think well god doesn't want me to have this healing now you know that's a, a typical doubt it's not my time or it's not his will for me to be healed or it's doing me, some people believe that God uses sickness to teach me lessons. Or to... well, Yeah, all things work together for good. Right. That verse. Yeah, that Romans verse, right. And so, but if you bring those to the example of Jesus that is in the Gospels and his healings, you won't ever see him tell someone that they need to wait. Think of the 10 lepers, you know, only one of them. Returned to thank him. So you could say only one of them had the really, really good attitude, but all of them were healed. There's never a case where he divides the multitude into you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly and, and does, <laughs> does different levels of healing for them even. It just says he heals them all. Okay, the one, there's one place in his hometown, Nazareth, says he was not able to do many mighty things works there because but it was because of their unbelief probably they just never came to him you know they knew him growing up how could he possibly have all this ability and power whatever
0: right the question i had asked was how do you counsel somebody who is cynical about healing because of that and you said what that person should do is go back to the gospels read through the different incidents that talk about jesus healing people are you saying that so that they would build their faith and get a corrected mindset when it comes to healing?
1: Yes. That's a very good way to put it.
2: It's the teaching of the gospel that builds the faith to get healed. I didn't know that before. I thought it was just the teaching of the Bible. It's the gospel that we need to hear. And I love the verse in uh, Matthew eleven twenty It talks about miracles are what help you turn from sin and turn to God. So he really wants that to happen. He wants you to see miracles. He wants you to have them so that you do that. He knows we're dust. We're just dusty. And that we need miracles.
0: What else would you say on this subject?
2: I would have someone attend a place where healing was taught correctly Mm -hmm. and see miracles happen on stage. That is very encouraging to see somebody's Back that's crooked and see them straight and go. Oh my gosh, I haven't I haven't felt this for years. But that's not cheating to see healing happen. Right, it's very encouraging, and that's why Jesus did it in a group.
1: You brought up about the counterfeits out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is very real. I believe there is a devil out there, our adversary, and he does not originate things, but he counterfeits the true, and then causes people to doubt, really, by the, the examples that you gave where they are taking advantage of people or doing things uh, deceptively or whatever it is. So there's a lot of stuff out there that could be good, bad, or otherwise. But on YouTube, you can see lots of these things. And Roger Sapp, for instance, is one who has lots of YouTube videos where he goes through and actually does this Uh, seminar, really. You can take the whole seminar online. Um, There are others. There's not one way in that sense to do it, but this is a very effective way. It's really the Holy Spirit's job to teach us. If we keep seeking diligently, I think God will continue to teach us and help us if we're genuine in our search and not giving up. And so that, that would really be what I would encourage people.
0: How do you deal with it when a healing doesn't happen and the person does have faith, but it still doesn't happen? How do you deal with that in your own heart and how, do, how would you encourage somebody to go forward in that situation?
2: Well, I believe that anytime we minister to someone, Jesus Christ is present and healing occurs. Maybe, to a smaller degree than the person would like, but they always walk away better than when they came, so I believe that I also believe that you have to stair step your faith you can 't just go out and hit a grand slam when you're beginning to learn about healing i mean we 're still learning about it, so i haven 't raised anybody from the dead, nor cleansed a leper, done the other two, but not not those. And I've prayed for someone who a week later died. In fact, two people who a week later died. Wow. It is very hard, but I am not in charge of death or life. That's God's realm. And when they get healed, I don't take the credit for that. And when they don't get healed, I don't take the blame for it. That isn't biblical. That isn't scriptural.
0: Yeah, you're the facilitator, not the healer.
2: Right. And, but I really had to work to get there because it hurt Hurt. Right.
1: What you've asked is really one of the cruxes of, of the situation because we have we have seen this be very painful for mm-hmm. people. But the key I think is you said when someone has faith and aren't healed, we can't really see right. faith. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's the key. We have come across a couple of times where someone says that kind of exact situation. I had a relative, a sister, a brother or whatever, a father who was had very strong faith you know they had a terminal illness a serious illness they were proclaiming professing their faith and yet they died and so they do not want to hear that it was the person's lack of faith or that there was some problem in the process many times they become bitter toward god right and and understandably that's understandably so right however and right it's there it's something that has to be dealt with but should be dealt with because I certainly do not believe that God withholds healing where it's ready to you know it should happen and he just decides no I'm not going to heal that person or that person won't be healed because you don't ever ever see Jesus do that Jesus never killed anyone or allowed anyone to die am I right I mean, I'm thinking here. Yeah, as far as I know, right? No, there was no case where he did that. As a matter of fact, he you know he raised people from the dead, but he never. I did allow Lazarus to die, but well, that okay. he wasn't really related. I to I knew that there situation. was one. I was. I just... He was obeying. Right. Okay. So, but but the point is that is a very very that's the difficult thing when you get into healing. You have to deal with that because, especially in our culture now, it's interesting. Many of the people I've read about and know who have uh, uh, healing ministries go to Africa or Asia, India, and they just talk about phenomenal results. And yet, in the Western world, Western Europe, England, Canada, United States, it's much more difficult. I mean, there are successful healing ministries, certainly, but the results are not nearly as widespread. And it's a matter of, I think, the spiritual attitudes and and the doctrines that have been promulgated and history that we've had, that shows that there really is a difference and that our influences, our theological and cultural influences, affect healing. Yeah, I think we tend to be a much more skeptical society. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. The Age of Enlightenment
0: did it. Yeah. A lot of uh, science versus spirituality right and that whole mindset but I, I don't think that those two need to be separate or defeat each other i think you can be a spiritual minded scientist or mm-hmm. a science minded spiritual oh, doctors
2: scientist. are really wonderful we never work against doctors
0: yeah we didn't even talk about doctors, mm-hmm. right <laughs> Yeah, that's important. To, I think that's important so to cover. You, would you say to somebody, don't go to the doctor? Never. I'd never
2: say that. And Absolutely. I'd always say, do what the doctor says so you can stay alive, to have the faith, to get healed.
0: Okay. That's a good yeah. middle position. Yeah. Well,
2: because faith yeah. comes and goes. It's not a cement block. It changes. One day you can have it, and you get healed. Next day you might not have as much. Eh. So it's... Something that can change. And so don't get frustrated if you don't have the faith today. You can have it tomorrow. You can get inspired by something. A child can say something or God can do something. And it can be a different day.
1: And in, in many cases, it involves just hearing more of the gospel or hearing more of the or, teaching of the word. We know faith comes by hearing.
2: Right. Or seeing another healing. You go, heck, somebody else's foot can get healed, so can mine. I've seen that happen a lot of times.
1: Oh, I bet. I bet.
0: Thanks for speaking with me today, and I think that people are interested in this subject, and I think it's an important subject and one that is too easily ignored by a lot of Christians and obsessed on by a few <laughs> to, to an unhealthy degree. And I think what you're presenting here is more of a balanced position on it that recognizes healing, recognizes the importance of it, but is not finding a demon under every table kind of a thing. So thanks for speaking with me today.
2: Thank you, Sean.
0: If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.